0: Morning, everybody. I'm Clary. um, And today we're we're in Acts 10, Kirsteen, with Peter and Cornelius. Um, So last week, if you remember, James Lee preached on how Saul had had his life and his theology turned upside down by Jesus and was proclaimed missionary to the Gentiles. And yet at this point, actually, only the Ethiopian and a handful of Samaritans had, had actually become followers of Jesus. But in Acts 10, we see the point where the Gentiles are invited into the church and today's preach is entitled Everyone's Invited. And I want to start by telling you a story of an amazing woman who I had the privilege to meet once and then to go to her funeral of and she was Simon's mother's godmother and her name was Dora Lockett and she moved with her family to a church in North London in the 1920s. And at that time, families like her, which were quite wealthy and well-off, went along to the morning service, and the servants would go along to the evening service. But Dora's a teenager and her family went to the evening service. And the vicar at the end of the service came up to them, and I'm sure very politely just said to them, you know, just just to let you know that the, the servants come to the evening service. And Dora's father turned back, and I'm sure just as politely said, we're all servants of God. And I love that because Dora was a woman who got it. Her family got it. We're all invited. And that way of thinking is only possible because of what happens in Acts 10. Because there's a paradigm shift here. There's a moment where the old way of thinking, us and them, turns into this new way of thinking. Everyone is invited. So we're going to start by reading through Acts 10. It's a long chapter, um, but it's worth hearing because all of it is amazing. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now, send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon, the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. "'Get up and go downstairs. "'Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them.' "'Peter went down and said to the men, "'I'm the one you're looking for. "'Why have you come?' "'The men replied, "'We've come from Cornelius the Centurion. "'He is a righteous and God-fearing man "'who is respected by all the Jewish people. "'A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house "'so that he could hear what you have to say.' "'And then Peter invited the men into the house "'to be his guests.' The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence, but Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you're well." Well aware that it's against our law, it's it's taboo for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? And Cornelius answered, three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor sent to Joppa for Simon, who's called Peter. He's a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, he lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. And then Peter began to speak. I now realise how true it is that God does not show favouritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who are under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who'd come with Peter were astonished that the gifts of the Holy Spirit had been poured out, even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptised with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Father, I thank you for your word. And as I speak today, I ask that you would t- teach us what it is you want to teach us. But more than all, that we would see you, Jesus. Amen. So today I want to take this passage and talk about the paradigm shift that God's taking Peter and the whole early church through. So a paradigm shift is an important change that happens when the usual way of thinking about or doing something is replaced by a new and different way. And here in in Acts 10, we see this moment, almost like this crisis point, where the new idea that everyone is invited overtakes the old thinking of us and them. So I want to start by looking at the build-up to the shift, how through the Old Testament and with Jesus, the change in thinking is coming. Then we're going to talk about the crisis point and about how God actually intervened in Peter's life and the life of the church. And I want to talk about three applications from today's passage. First, that as everyone is invited, there's no place for prejudice in the church and how we can perhaps be more sensitive to that. Secondly, to remind us that we can sometimes disinvite and exclude ourselves and actually we may need an encouragement about how we too are invited. And finally, we're going to look again at the importance of extending this invite to others. So let's start with the build-up. So when a paradigm shift happens in science, there's kind of small pieces of evidence which bit by bit point up to the new way, and then there's this crisis point where the new way of thinking takes over. And this is the pattern we see in the Old Testament. But let's start with what we know of the Jews. The Jewish people are almost unique as an ethnically and culturally distinct group of people who've kept their identity over thousands of years. I think grounded in the Bible as we are I often forget that the Jews were actually a tiny race compared to all the people on earth at the time. They were this small cultural subset, completely outnumbered and overwhelmed by all the people around them. However, they had the law, which was an oral and then a written history, and their traditions and rules, and that set them apart, and it gave them this sense of identity and community. Now, the Jewish faith is adaptive. It's, It's always been one of adaptation and reinterpretation, of discussion and argument... Um, and as their kind of worldview and their knowledge changed, they kind of reimagined God. So it wasn't that God changed, but actually through the Old Testament, we see their understanding of God change as they turn from being kind of a tiny, nomadic, violent Iron Age tribe to this really highly cultured and settled civilization, which I think is really pointed out well in, in that passage in Acts 17, where they're able to converse with you know, Greek philosophers and scholars about the understanding of who God is. So their worship and their laws and their traditions have to adapt to all their different circumstances. Tent and temple, temple, exile and occupation. And throughout all of this, they hold on to their identity. And actually, at the time of Jesus, they're again an occupied nation under the Roman Empire. But the Jews never relinquish their identity as Jewish. And in the face of persecution, they perhaps even hold on to it even more tightly. And so all of these writings, all their traditions, the food laws, the cleanliness laws, the worship laws, meant Jews knew very clearly who they were. A Jew could tell another Jew by what they wore, what they ate, how they lived. And this following of traditional rules, which has kept the Jewish cultural t- identity together, has also set them apart. And they have effectively split the whole world into two. There's us, the Jews, and there is them, the Gentiles, or everybody else. And, you know, I think the Jews knew they were better. I mean, they had the law and they had God. So everyone else didn't. Everyone else was the them, the Gentiles. You didn't marry them. You didn't work with them. You didn't eat with them. You didn't enter the home. You didn't invite them to enter yours. And, okay, they could join you if they would change their behaviour to follow your rules, live your way, eat your food, worship in your temple and get circumcised. But if they don't do all that, they can't be Jewish. At heart, they're other And by the time of Jesus, the Gentiles even referred to as dogs. And we know this because Jesus challenges this idea when he heals the child of a Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7. And I wonder if you've ever had an experience of being the other. Have you ever had that moment where you have felt excluded or you've been treated differently because of some characteristic about yourself? Whether you ever felt that pressure to conform or to change, to be included? So this was kind of the background. But throughout the Old Testament, we do see hints that one day all nations will be blessed. One day all nations will stream to the temple. So for example, right at the beginning in Genesis, God introduces the idea of his image bearers filling the earth. And he says to Abraham, through you, all peoples will be blessed. We know kings from all nations came to Solomon. And in the Psalms, this idea that all nations will come to praise God, it's a repeated theme. Habakkuk, right at the end of our Old Testament, says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Now, as mentioned, Judaism has this long and great tradition of discussion and argument and an entire oral tradition which records the brilliant arguments and the opinions and interpretations and, and their way of teaching was in dialogue, asking questions, finding answers and of course Jesus taught and questioned in this great tradition. But Jesus challenges and questions Jewish thinking like no one has before and he claims a really unique authority to reinterpret the scriptures. He challenges some of their most deeply held beliefs. Jesus argued that cleanliness comes not from what you eat, but what's in your heart. He healed on the Sabbath. He invites a tax collector to join him. He talks to a Samaritan woman at a well and heals a Roman centurion servant. Time after time, in teaching and in action, Jesus puts loving people above legalism, and he pushes his disciples towards this coming paradigm shift. And often I feel like we're watching them struggle to keep up with it. And in hindsight, it's kind of clear to see that Jesus is pointing to a time of including the Gentiles. So in Matthew 16, Jesus tells Peter he's given him the keys to the kingdom. And some commentators connect this with Jesus' later command, when after his resurrection, he tells his disciples, take the gospel to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And it's certainly Peter we see at these key points, unlocking the kingdom of heaven to different groups. In Acts 2, Peter preaches the gospel on the streets of Jerusalem and opens up the kingdom to the Jews, not just those who'd known and followed Jesus whilst alive, but to those who bade for his blood. In Acts 8, we hear how these Jews then flee and the gospel reaches Judea and Samaria. And it's Peter who's summoned to check out the believers in Samaria, and he sees them baptised in the Holy Spirit and confirms that the kingdom of heaven is open to them. And now here in Acts 10, God's going to bring this paradigm shift to its crisis point. Some commentators say that Acts 10 may be as much as 10 years after Acts 1. You know, the gospel's gone to Jerusalem, it's gone to Judea, even to Samaria, but it can't really get further. We've had one Ethiopian's been saved, and Paul's been appointed apostle to the Gentiles. And, you know, Peter's doing his best. He's even staying at a tanner's house, which is an unclean trade. But inside Peter and inside the other Jewish Christians, it is still us. And then, and then God starts to work and he shows Peter a vision, a huge sheet being let down and filled with all of these unclean animals and he tells Peter in direct contradiction to all of those ancient food laws which have been interpreted and applied and discussed for up to thousands of years to kill and eat and Peter says, no Lord. Now. It takes guts and perhaps a degree of naivety to say no to God and call him Lord in the same breath once. But it seems Peter managed it three times. And I, I wonder if later Peter remembered his first no, Lord, when Jesus had met him in his boat and told him, let down a net to catch some fish. And Peter said, but master, there's no point. And yet when he did, it was filled to overflowing with Jesus's grace and bounty. And I think the repeating three times of the vision is important. I guess it's worth saying that the Bible repetition is often used as emphasis. I mean, and this story is told twice here in Acts 10 and Acts 11. and We're told the vision happens three times. Um, So there's something about this three times. And we're also told that Peter really wondered and thought about the meaning of vision. And I'm wondering if in those times of thinking, he's remembering the other times in his life when he's been asked the same question three times over. Did he, the third time that vision came, hear once more the cock crow? And remember that night where he learnt what it would mean to stand up to everyone around him in order to declare Jesus God? Because everyone around Peter right now feels the same as he does with regards to food laws and Gentiles. Would Peter this time have the courage to tell everyone about the vision, that it came from Jesus, and to face the fear of himself once more being the excluded. And I wonder too, did this vision remind him of the previous time when Jesus offered him food? Talking to Cornelius and his family later, Peter refers to having eaten with Jesus after his resurrection, so maybe it was in his mind. Three times that day by the sea, Jesus asked him, Peter, do you love me? And three times Jesus told him, feed my sheep. Is Peter now wondering, well, exactly who did Jesus mean by his sheep? Had Jesus really meant the Gentiles too? Because for Peter, this isn't a question of food. It isn't about, would you like to taste a prawn? It isn't even really about keeping the laws. This is about inclusion and identity. Who God is and who God wants in his kingdom. And Peter gets it. This is about all of those people who Peter knew in his heart of hearts, in the depths of his soul, in his Torah, studying, synagogue, teaching, law, following self, that those people were out. And now God is saying, they're in. Peter says, God has shown me I should not call anyone impure or unclean. But a change this big takes more than a vision and even more than a three times vision. As well as the vision, God also gives him a direct command. Peter, go with the men who are calling you, without hesitation. I'm guessing he knew Peter would have hesitated to go with Gentiles. And it's more than a three times vision and a command. There's a divine preparation. The whole story of Cornelius, his instruction from an angel. And again, we see repetition as emphasis. We hear this story of Cornelius three times in Acts 10, and Peter recounts it again for us in Acts 11. It matters. And on top of the vision and the command and the preparation, there's this divine action. As the Holy Spirit himself pours out on this group of outsiders, these unbelievers, Peter and all the Jews with him see it, no one can stand in the way of the inclusivity of God. I'm just going to readjust this. So God goes to extraordinary lengths. To take Peter and the early Jewish church with him from this place of deep-seated racial prejudice to make sure his gospel can be taken to the ends of the earth. And here with Peter and Cornelius, we've reached this crisis point of the paradigm shift. After this moment, Paul will take the gospel to the Gentiles and later write, there is no Jew and Greek. All are one in Christ. And as with all paradigm shifts, it isn't always a done and dusted after the crisis. For Even after all of this, after the visions and the command and the preparations and the actions, we read in Galatians that later on Peter once more withdraws from eating with Gentiles, and he has to be confronted by Paul. And furthermore, in Acts 15, the council in Jerusalem has to be called and again affirm that Gentiles can be Christians and they don't have to become Jews first. So we've seen this paradigm shift that's happened, how throughout Jewish history, And culminating in Jesus, the worship of God was to be opened up to everyone through the cross. And we've seen the extraordinary experience Peter had to have to help the church through this crisis point and for this new way of thinking to become the norm. So it's time for our first application. And that's about prejudice. Prejudice is part of our sinful condition. And we must be humble and recognise that we, the church... This glorious earthly demonstration of God's many splendid and multicoloured wisdom and grace struggle. And we struggle to deal with it just like Peter did. Time after time throughout history, and especially when, like the Jews, the church has felt under threat, the church has said, us and them. Through issues of slave and free, sex and gender, racism and skin colour, through tribalism and caste, social standing and culture through homophobia, transphobia, and every sort of prejudice and bias. And time after time, God has said, do not call unclean what I have called clean. His call and his blessing are open to all. But sometimes we get so culture bound, so used to our rules and our traditions that we think "Mm, that person could never be a Christian or perhaps worse and more insidious, not a proper Christian like us. And I think we almost have to be at our most careful with that one. You know, we live in a time where there are many local churches in a city and sometimes we get sucked in. We think, oh, those people, you know, people like that had better go to that church over there. Or, oh, well, we're, we're the proper Christians. We're the ones who are doing it right. And we end up having some black majority churches and white majority churches. We have LGBT churches and straight churches, churches for the middle class and churches where the poor are welcome, liberal churches and fundamental churches, or even as in Dora's day, you know, services for the wealthy and then services for the servants. And yet, as Paul tells us, by his death on the cross, Jesus tore down the wall of hostility which divided us. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free, male nor female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. The author, Barbara Brown Taylor, phrased it like this. She said, I am not in charge of this house and never will be. I have no say in who is in and who is out. I do not get to make the rules. That's something I found deeply helpful. But it takes courage to say, yes, Lord, and to be prepared and willing to have our eyes open to the ways in which we are being exclusive. Um, I don't know if anyone here has read Let's Talk About Race by Ben Lindsay or A Church for the Poor by Martin Charlesworth and Natalie Williams. But one thing that I've learned from books like these and others is that when I'm proud enough to think that I'm not prejudiced, That's when I'm so deep into my own culture, my own straight, white, middle-classness, that I don't even see it. And so I guess my first question to you today is, are you brave enough to ask God if there is any prejudice inside yourself? Or whether perhaps you sometimes do or say things which make it harder for others to belong? Secondly, I think it's also worth us realising that we can, often in a much more subtle way, apply the exclusion to our own selves. Right, We know everyone is invited. And yet when we sit in church, we can look around and think, oh, well, I'm, I'm not like them, though. I don't really belong. I don't think I've been in a church yet where people don't perceive there to be an inner clique. And perhaps I've even been in some churches where there was an inner clique. Um, so, yeah, cliques, those small friendship groups that leave people out. And there's an old joke. It's only a clique if you're not in it. But cliques aside... This feeling of not belonging is something which I think we all experience from time to time. And sometimes we need God to help us through this paradigm shift for ourselves. You know, if everyone is invited, I am too. And the same God who is in everyone else here, here's the same Holy Spirit who is in me. And even if I don't look the same or talk the same, I don't like the same films or the same sports or I don't live on the same estate, I can know that I, too am invited and I belong. Everyone's invited. And so my second question is, if that's you, what are the things that you do or say to yourself to remind yourself that you're invited and that you belong? What are the really helpful things that you found give you that sense of belonging and being part of the community? So if I'm invited, and if everyone's invited, and we're all welcome and we don't get to choose who's in and who's out, then actually, do we still need to do any inviting? And, And I've mentioned this here because For me, after having my mind blown about all the people that God would call in when I would call out, the easy way out is that I just assume, well, everyone's in, and therefore I don't need to preach Jesus anymore. And and there's a temptation to try a new scripture to support me on this one. I mean, Peter even says right here, Acts 10, verse 36, God accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And that'd be a wonderful get out clause, wouldn't it? if God could just accept everyone as long as they behave well, and then we don't actually need to tell them about Jesus at all. And if I'm really honest with you, I would much rather look at my parents and my siblings, my friends and my colleagues, and think, well, you know, they're, they're living true to themselves and, and will not God just be generous and, and merciful to them when it comes to it on the day? And I do it because it's easier, because I'm scared, because I don't know if my relationship with them is strong enough to bear the weight and the pressure of me talking about Jesus with them. But Acts 10 doesn't let me do that. Firstly, as we've seen, it's not about the laws. You could have obeyed every food law and still been a Gentile and unreachable before God breakthrough. Peter's vision does not teach us, well, some laws can be reinterpreted, but some must be obeyed and knowing which is which and obeying the right ones will make you a Christian. No. As we saw before, Peter's vision was to teach him that God does not show favoritism. And secondly, we the example of Cornelius. Cornelius here is a God-fearer. He acts right, he gives right, he even hears directly from and obeys the angel of the Lord. But if acting right had been enough, Cornelius wouldn't have needed the synagogue. And if the synagogue had been enough, he wouldn't have needed the angel of the Lord. And if even the angel of the Lord had been enough to save Cornelius, he wouldn't have needed to call for Peter but he did. Cornelius still needed to hear the gospel of Jesus. And how could he hear if Jesus hadn't been preached? Cornelius needed to know that this Jesus who lived and died on a cross and was raised to life is Lord of all. And through him comes forgiveness. And Cornelius too needed to repent, to believe, to be baptised in water and in the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit who will give us the power and the courage, who will open up the paths to invite other people. And so my prayer is that we'll all have faith where I struggle. We'll have courage to invite our friends to Alpha or to the service next week or to the City Kids Club party. We'll have courage to mention the name of Jesus where we can. That we'll have strong relationships which are unimpeded by prejudice and selfishness, where we love freely and we can talk honestly. And I think we can also take comfort from the fact that even though it's Peter who we see unlocking the kingdom of heaven to unbelievers everywhere, actually, it's James who leads the church in Jerusalem, it's Philip who preaches to the Othium, and it's Paul who's called to be the apostle to the Gentiles, and following them are hundreds and thousands and millions of people who throughout Acts and all of church history have been called to different people groups. For some of us, it is our nearest and dearest who we most effectively evangelise to, For some of us, it's people experiencing homelessness or the friends at the school gate or our colleagues or a people group from a particular nation. It isn't the responsibility of any one person, not even Peter, to reach everybody. And as we follow the Holy Spirit's prompting, our own hearts and the circumstances of our lives, we will meet the people who, like Cornelius, say to us, we're here to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Though in my experience, never in those words. So my final question is, who is it that you have on your heart to invite into the kingdom of God? And take strength that God is already there before you. He has prepared the way. He will see his kingdom through to the finish. One day we know we will stand in heaven with people from every tribe and tongue and nation worshipping God. And amongst that crowd, there are going to be people who've had a little bit of that invite from you. So today I've talked about that paradigm shift that God took the early church through. How inviting everyone was God's plan from the beginning. How Jesus' reimagining of the Jewish faith really started that ball rolling. And how God's intervention with Peter and Cornelius took that early church through that crisis point and began this new normal where everyone is invited. And I've applied that to us today. Noticing that we too struggle with sins of prejudice and exclusivity and yet God does and will open our eyes in order to make sure that everyone is invited. We've also seen how we can feel excluded ourselves and and can be encouraged that we too are invited and welcomed into the family. And we've also heard that even if in theory everyone is invited, in practice we still need to do some inviting, and that God by spirit is there with us and helping us to do this. So as we return to sung worship and to communion, I want to leave you with three questions. And you might want to think them through before God as we're worshipping now. Um, Or perhaps there's something for you to take away and think through this week or maybe talk about in your small groups. But firstly, that question of are you willing to ask God if you have any prejudices? Are there people that you genuinely would struggle to accept as brothers and sisters in Christ because of their behaviours or their identity? The second is that how do you remind yourself that you are invited and that you do belong? And thirdly, can you identify those people who you're good at connecting with and that you can share the gospel with? Thank you, Nick and Ben.